Welcome to Vox Vomitus, also known as Word Vomit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our special Saturday edition of Vox Vomitus. I am your host, Jennifer Ann Gordon, the author of Beautiful, Frightening, and Silent, as well as the Hotel series. With me today, as always, are my Vox Vomitus vixens, Trisha Ridinger-McKee, author of the Beyond series, and Alison Martine, author of the Bourbon books. Today we have a very special guest with us all the way from fancy London. I almost just did a bad accent. I will try not to. Uh, <laughs> author Elizabeth Gifford. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Um, I am proud of myself for not going into a, a tiny Tim accent when I introduced you. Please don't. I, uh, now I might at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Can you tell us and our audience and our viewers a little bit about yourself and about your work? Um, well, I've been writing for about 10 years. Um, after uh, I taught for quite a few years, um, children with dyslexia mostly. Um, and then I started to do various classes and courses in creative writing because I just found it very interesting. And the children were getting older and didn't really need so much um, input. So I was enjoying some classes at Diploma and then I did a master's in London with a really nice group of people, one of whom is um, a very nice American girl called Liza Klausman. And we um, each prepared a novel and had a really, really great time. And about another year or so later, when I'd really got the book ready, and so had they, we put them all together in a sort of leaflet and sent them out to, I think, all the agents in London, including a couple who passed away. And um, oh. they're not going to represent you if you're different. <laughs> yeah. And so we organised an event and had some wine and things and did some readings. And I think quite a few of us got an agent from that event. And I love, uh, that. I love that you all bonded together and did yeah. this together as a team. Yeah. yeah. Is that how, Elizabeth, is that how you got signed? Uh, yes. Um, I, that's how I find it. Like a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. Yeah. Well, I think actually um, all these um, master's courses, I think agents do keep half an ear open um, because they know, um, they just know that you put a lot of work into something. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it's having a finished project that the agent can sell that's kind of fundamental really. So. So when you're doing a master's in literature, because was it in creative writing or literature? What was the specific focus? This was creative writing. You're actually, your project was to um, start writing a novel. That's amazing. Yeah, my, my husband has his master's, and so he has a master's thesis, all polished and nice. But no one's going to polish it. Nobody's going to read that because it's about education and technology. And it's yeah. definitely oh, already Well, it's <laughs> teachers. Teachers, that's perfect for them. But the idea yeah. that creating something that the wider world actually wants to read and it's applicable to everyone, not just people in that specific discipline. That's, yeah. I love the idea of making the masters something 
practical that way and yes. accessible. Yeah, it's it's quite a craft based masters really. I think um, I think it's it's a bit like doing a sort of art course where you're sort of creating something. Um, and I mean, I think it's best to go into it because you enjoy it, and then if you do get uh, you know a book deal, that's a bonus. But it's um, it was great. Yeah, I loved it. So you have kind of like classmates that got agents at the same time. Did they all find publication deals around the same time? So do you have like a crop of? Uh, yes. Yeah. There were, I think there were about six of us. And I think wow. um, we didn't all quite follow the same group. One lady went back into publishing. Uh, one wrote one very good book and then went into farming. Uh, are we back to the chickens and the goats again (laughs) yeah yeah. knows what they're doing yeah um one lady incredibly um, bonding experience it can be i think the main thing is that you're supportive um i think there were there was another group where people tended to take offense and they kind of fell out um so we were lucky that we were quite sort of um easy going group but I think um I think it's harder when you're very young and you're going to say do a creative writing course because so much rides on it whereas I think when you're slightly more established you know it's not the only string in your bow and and you're more sort of uh, sanguine about it really um, yes yeah, so I had a good time um one lady um yeah quite a few people published but they haven't necessarily made it their whole life they also do other things here. So did families, got married, that sort of thing. So your debut novel that got published, that's the one you wrote as your master's? Yes. And what is the title of that book called? That's called Secrets of the Sea House. And it's, um, it's a sort of mystery historical novel. But it's actually based on a, a, an interesting legend from the Scottish islands about mermaid sightings. And it's based on a real letter in the Times reporting a mermaid sighting. And um, so what's behind that, and also the Selkie legend, where the, a seal person comes on shore and takes their seal skin off, uh, is actually based probably on Sami kayakers from Norway who would come over in sealskin canoes and sealskin outfits. And then they'd sort of um, take them off when they reached... Um, Scotland. So there was quite an interesting way of retaining Scottish history and myth while having a lot of fun writing about a place I love. So, and that's a big, um, I'd say probably tonal change from your book, um, The Good Doctor of Warsaw. Am I getting the title correct? Yes, yes. Which is a, it, that's heavy material. Yes, yes, that was, um, quite a project. I wanted to do it for a long time, but it took me a while, about 10 years actually, to work up to it. And that came out of my teaching in that um, I went to a course and heard about Dr. Korchak and some quotes from the lecture. And I thought, you know, that's just the best advice I've ever had as a mother and a teacher. And I really felt it was quite life-changing. So I started researching um, Dr. Korchak and his um, advice on you know, respecting children and treating them as people while helping them grow into who they're meant to be rather than sort of crushing them with this, you know, you must be perfect, you must be 
you know, um, wonderful and um, get all the top grades. So he was more into get to know your child and help them be who they're meant to be. And he had a fantastic relationship. He was a bachelor, never married, none of his own children. But he had a fantastic father relationship with about 200 children at one time because he just knew them. Um, so I started researching that and came across um, the son of a young couple who had lived in the Warsaw Ghetto with Dr. Korczak. And they'd been um, some of the 1% out of Arthur Million to survive the ghetto. And um, so I, I started to get to know Rome and went over to Sweden and visited him. He told me where to go in Warsaw to see the places where it had all happened. And um, through him, I was able to frame the story through his parents' love story. And of course, although it's a very tragic story about prejudice and some of the darkest times of last century, it also has a wonderful message of hope because there are thousands of people across the world who follow Dr. Korczak. And um, in fact, I went over to Seattle about before lockdown and um, joined in with the Yanis Korczak Worldwide Association. Um, which was held in Seattle by um, the American uh, branch. But there are people there from Russia, Ukraine, Brazil, um, Israel, Poland. I mean, all, the, all the places you think don't get on, well, they all come together <laughs> and have a blast talking about children and Dr. Kulcher. Did you feel a certain amount of pressure to make sure you told the story the right way? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was, um, in fact, I wrote the book so factually to begin with that the publisher said, you know, we can't read this, it's unreadable. Please, could you go back and write it as a novel? And in fact, people can't really take in a lot of information without that storyline and that sort of description. So although I very carefully stuck to the facts and filled in from research. It was written as a novel in the end. Historical yeah, it sounds like the first draft was almost a textbook, which would have been yeah. very helpful if you were doing your own research paper, but wouldn't be as accessible for someone who just wants to feel the story and do all of that. Yes, yes, and it was, and it's surprisingly hard to read. It's um, it would be better in a way to do a nonfiction book because you get more analysis and, and sort of color from that. So that was that was an interesting one. But I did feel a quite crushing responsibility to keep to the facts. And also Roman, the couple's son, also felt a great responsibility to correct me if I did anything incorrect. So I've now been told by a, um, a Holocaust professor that it's actually a very accurate book. Okay. And that's huge. That's well, and normally, if, when we think of historical fiction, when you're dealing with something that happened several hundred years ago, I know lots of people like to write about the Tudor age. You don't have yeah. descendants from one or two generations out saying, no, this isn't the way my mom and dad told me the story or great uncle Henry. That's not how he really acted. You yeah. have people who are still living this as part of their lives. So, you know, that must've been a huge responsibility to do it correctly, but then to be told you got it. That's, that yeah. has to feel just amazing to know that you did it justice. Yes, it was. Um, that, that was a great thing. And um, but yeah, I was absolutely 
shattered by the time I finished. And, um, it must have been uh, emotionally exhausting. Yes, it was. I have to be honest. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, our show is about honesty. Our show, we call it Vox Vomitus because we talk about the, not just our successes, but we talk about when we write things that don't quite click, the mistakes we make, the the process of being a writer. So I guess I would ask you, did you have a lot of like, you wrote it first very factually, and then you added the novelization, the love story. Did you have a lot of false starts with the fictionality of it? Did you know immediately how to take the, the novel part of the story or did you struggle with finding where um, the story would be? Like well, I enjoy doing that sort of creative writing. So I felt quite released actually to go off and do my thing. So I think, I think the publisher was quite surprised that um, I was sort of, oh yes, I, I'll enjoy doing this. So in fact, I, I, did, I did enjoy the creative writing process. Unfortunately, by then, I'd done lots of um, research and visited Warsaw, and um, I felt ready to go. So it was, I, I found it quite interesting sort of doing that same. So what are you working on now? Well, I've just finished a book set in the Hebrides, which are the islands of Scotland. And... Um, the, the most remote island in the UK is called St Kilda, and it had a very special community there who were evacuated in the 30s. Um, so I've just finished that book, that book's out, and now I'm writing a book about the Dundee whaling fleet uh, and also about a castle that I know quite well. I don't know if I've got a picture of it. A very beautiful Scottish castle in Fife. Um, so I'm doing a story there and about the connection with the Dundee whalers and the Inuit community in the Arctic. That's a sort of mystery story. So you have a strong connection to Scotland because we keep hearing, oh, this one was in Scotland. I love Scotland. What is it about Scotland or the Scottish people that, that draws you so much to explore their history through story? Well, my family's part Scottish. My husband's Scottish, so... We spend quite a lot of time there, our Scottish grandsons. Um, but I think um, I'm, I'm actually from an Irish background and one way or another, there's just no link to my sort of Celtic history. I think I don't even know who my Irish ancestors were because all the records were blown up in the Easter Rising. So when we started going up to the Hebrides, the Gaelic culture there is still quite intact um, they speak um, Scottish Gaelic and stories are quite present and it's very undeveloped um, and it's it's how I always imagined Ireland would be so I, I sort of felt a thing about preserving some of the history there I think felt it was a pity I'd lost my own I suppose yeah. and it's just very lovely it's beautiful well, and losing your own connection there that that's heartbreaking to hear that the records were lost can you what happened there I'm not familiar with how that would have happened Oh, it was um, the 1912 Easter Rising. They, um, I think the Irish rebels then blew up the post office with all the records in it. Oh, wow. So, Gosh, yeah. it's, it's incredible. I mean, we take for granted now that we live in this age of technology where things can, can't be lost anymore, even if That's you want true. them to be lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> make them disappear. 
Uh, but, you know, even just a hundred years ago, it, it was so ephemeral. Like things could just really all of a sudden vanish. Yeah. And I think that's what I like about historical um, novel writing. You can take somebody somewhere you just can't go otherwise. In a book. I mean, a film can do that too, but I think um, a novel can take you inside a person's head as well. So I, too, am Scottish and Irish in background. My mother is French, but when I tried to do Ancestry.com to trace my father's lineage, it just got to a certain point, and then there was nothing, and I never understood why. So I feel like you might have just shed a little bit of light on why there's all of a sudden nothing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've got Irish ancestry on my dad's side as well, and... I know we've been able to trace some of it back, but then at certain points you just you just lose records and go, well, we can only go this far back and have no clue beyond that. But I wonder how many other events like that or things like that where all records were kept in one place and one fire or one explosion just takes out everyone's ancestry from that point back. Yeah, yeah. Or, or people didn't always write records down before a certain point. I mean, um, people would sort of know in the village who was who, but... Well, and when your population is largely illiterate, you would have to have like the priest or the one person in the town who can read to be able to record all that. And if he gets sick and dies and there you lose, you lose everything. And we just, we don't have that now. Mm. I think they had a character called the storyteller. He used to go from house to house and tell stories in old Irish culture. I mean, the idea of story is very... mm, it gives me chills. That just gave me chills. I love that. I feel like that's because that's who you are now. You are the, you are the storyteller. We are all the storytellers. Yes. And do you do you guys feel inspired by your Celtic roots in your writing? Um, I'm very inspired. Uh, most of my characters tend to be Irish. So far, they've tended to be Irish. Uh, I write a lot about where I live, the general area where I live in New England, and there was a lot of Irish immigration into Boston and then up through New England. So I write about that and I write about, um, you know, the French Canadian heritage, because that's basically where we are. Um, My my mom was French Canadian. She I grew up in a house where she spoke French and uh, but only when it was like secrets that I wasn't supposed to know about because I didn't speak French. Jen, is uh, that why your burlesque name is very French? My burlesque name is actually my mother's maiden name. There you go. And the French version of basically Jennifer. Sylvia? So, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I don't, but part of that is my family is originally from Pennsylvania, and we moved out here when I was three, so I've always kind of felt like an expatriate, even from the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, uh, which was more my mom's side, and my dad's side had a mix of that, and the Irish side. But I just wasn't told a lot of this growing up. And so I write from my own life experiences and including my family experiences. But there's there's almost this sense of just homogenous American or even Californian, which is really sad. But there's there's no connection back to that. And I, I love the idea of historical accuracy of looking into that. And the only person I know in my family who's really looked into it is my sister. And she says we're related to Queen Isabella. I think she just wants Ooh. to be a princess, honestly. <laughs> like, yeah. so we, don't, we can't trace otherwise back to, to Spain. And she's going back to Spain. And I'm going, nowhere else in our ancestry do we even have anyone from that, from that country. So 
Good luck there, kid. Good luck there. I got nothing. You never know. It's not very far from Ireland, Spain. There's a big connection. No, it, it isn't. And we always had joked that there were probably some Spanish pirates who crashed aboard and found some poor Irish lass. And the rest is key history. The rest is DNA history. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think there is a thing about um, Irish pirate, uh, Spanish pirates who landed on Irish shores. That's that's probably how we got these. <laughs> Very long, long time later. And I've used a couple different like Scottish folklore terms, and because I've used uh, the idea of the Kelpie in one of my books, right. and, and uh, like a Grundilo, which is like Grundilo. a swamp, the swamp monster of a of like a Scottish bog. <laughs> Oh, but just funny. like the idea of it yeah. uh, as being something that, you know, children were scared of when they were little because their grandparents yeah. mentioned those words. So yeah. as an adult, they still like think of the, those things. Yes. Yeah. And then there's often a lot of yeah history behind that stuff. It's, it's, it's great to keep it, you know, keep it going. Yeah. yeah. And I enjoyed it because what's funny is I had people reading my book say, I didn't know what a Kelpie was until... You mentioned it just once and they didn't know. So then they looked it up and they were just like, that was so cool and weird. I'm like, oh, yay, learning. <laughs> uh, and when I read on your on your bio, Elizabeth, about about the Selkies, I remembered it because my parents had this. I don't know if it was from, from uh, Reader's Digest or what, but it was this massive book of folklore and legends that my sister used to bring out to frighten me because everything in it just freaked me out as a kid but it, it had those in there and the picture of the guy who looked like a standing seal and it was a black and white sketch and it was terrifying so yeah. I'm hoping that it have a terror feel to it I didn't get the sense that it did but personally I'm terrified of them um, <laughs> no it, it wasn't going in that direction it was I, didn't, I didn't I didn't get the sense that it was it's <laughs> my own personal yeah yeah <laughs> so um Trisha do you have any questions for Elizabeth I do. I do. I wanted to know, um, you know, we talk about writing and the stumble blocks and everything else, but um, I want to know, um, do you have any hobby that you absolutely love doing, but you're not, you don't really excel at it? Oh, I mean, I love like drawing, but I can't <laughs> draw a straight line. <laughs> um, well, not just such. I mean, I, I do like gardening and knitting and that sort of thing, walking. But um, at, at the moment, I tend to put most of my energies into writing or just keeping the family going. But but I do like to have a hobby, and I suppose at the moment, writing has um, has filled that gap. Yeah. Was it strange to have writing go from kind of a, a hobby to your career? Um, it happened quite gen gently. So I started cutting down on the teaching. I was only ever part-time. So um, the strange thing about it was I was surprised how much I missed work, really, because there's a lot of stimulus there. I had to get a routine where I was leaving the house and seeing other people and doing things. Um, it sounds so foreign now. You're just <laughs> leaving the house. Yeah, I know. Well, doing things. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think oh, everything's yeah. the same now. It's you know you realise how valuable your outside home contacts are. I found that I think for for me, and I'm sure it's probably the same for a lot of you. When I was going outside the house and seeing people and doing things my writing time was much more structured because I had to make it be structured 
And now that the days just go on forever and the yeah. weeks and the weekends are all the same thing. Um, I'm, I'm finding my writing schedule is, it's weird. It's different. Uh, it's not as productive as I thought it would be. Have, yeah. I have, think that's true. I think a lot of people have found that. And, um, usually I hit deadlines pretty accurate, but I've just gone past my deadline a couple of times this time. Just, just oh, it's, it's in the air. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people are struggling with, with that aspect of stimulation and structure. Well, and it's funny because I, I do know there are folks who, because their normal routine got changed, that's when they decided, I'm going to write that novel and I'm going to do that. So some people took 2020 shutdown as this is my opportunity and here's their book and that's awesome. And yeah. I feel like for the rest of us, maybe who writing already was part of it, the things that we did I know for me, I used to be able to write when my kids were in school, but when they're home and need me to help log them onto things, that just completely dried up. So trying to find those little moments to write just became these most yeah. precious, rare gems. Yeah. Now, so I have a little it's, bit more time, but it's, it it's made hard it. to find the inspiration too when you're just home. You're just yeah. home and you're not seeing different things or having different conversations with a lot of people. So... And I know for me, I don't like to write at home. And I know that's terrible because every time I go out, it costs me at least a cup of coffee. But to go and sit someplace else where there's nothing else, I'm not staring at a pile of dirty dishes or dirty laundry or things that get spilled. I can just use that time productively. And I know I've got this chunk of time before I got to go get little Mr. Naked usually from school. And I can do that. But now it's like, all right, well, they're always here or they're back home again. Was I supposed to be doing something? I don't even remember anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I like to um, write at home in the morning and then walk out to a coffee shop in the afternoon across the park. And um, I really miss that. Right there with you. Or just getting to see people and have just the face-to-face -face interaction time. And I've had a few yeah. Zoom chats with people. And aside from our normal Zoom thing, because, uh, you know, Trish is in Pennsylvania and Jen's in New Hampshire, we weren't going to see each other anyway, but the people that I'm used to having just a few moments of interaction with, those are just gone and it just yeah. isolating. Yes, it's it's strange how much um, that stimulation affects your brain and, and just going for a walk affects your brain. So it, I think it is a different, a different thing really in lockdown. You've got all this time, but it kind of slides into one big mass. Yes. Yeah. When your writing time is the same time of doing dishes and taking care of a grandchild or a parent or another yeah. child, it's like yeah. it, it, it gets very slippery into, oh, I can just write in an hour. And then yes. all of a sudden you're not writing in an hour. Yeah. You're doing laundry again. Or you're looking at the computer going, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. words aren't happening here. I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when research is always fun. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Says the woman who's researched laundry. I have researched laundry. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, well, it's historical I, fiction. I had to. <laughs> well, and I just love Elizabeth when you were talking earlier about getting to go and speak to people about their life experiences, visit the places. Um, mm. That that's something I just I have nothing but admiration for, and honestly, just a little bit of jealousy because. Even before lockdown, I was very limited about where I could go. So places, I would have to rely on my memory of places if I'd been there or create or look online for research. And there were so many times when I just thought, do I have time to make the drive out to this place to see it myself? Mm -hmm. I don't have time. I have to just 
rely on pictures and rely on my memory. And for writers who get to go and like get that feel of the place, there's there's just nothing that replaces that. Yeah, I think it's very stimulating, and it depends really how much um, the place is important to the book. So, the last book it was about the island of St Kilda, and uh, it's quite tricky to get out there. It's quite a rough boat ride, and um, the boats quite often get cancelled. It's um, but I just couldn't have done that book without going there. But of course, I never visited the Warsaw Ghetto. It doesn't exist. It was yeah. completely. It was completely flattened at the end of the war, uh, and they even took the bricks away. And and, um, and in fact, the whole centre of Warsaw was flattened. When you go there and see these beautiful old buildings, they were all reconstructed from plans and photographs. You know, stone by stone, it looks as if it's been there for about 500 years, but it's new, 50 years old. So I think in some ways there are places you can't go to because they're in the past or inaccessible, but you do sort of reconstruct them. Yeah, you like, you reconstruct them. Right. Um, And and when you're doing something where there was no, if it's imaginary, then no one can say, oh, that doesn't feel right because the author is the one bringing it to life in the first place. But when you're dealing with a real place, how, how much accuracy you want to bring into. And if you can't visit it because it's not there anymore, then you're just trying to do your best. And I'm sure you did it absolute justice. And it, it's great to hear that the people who lived it can say, yes, that feels right. Or it feels like the story yeah. told to me by someone who did live it. Yeah. Of course, if you, if you do write about a real place and you get it wrong, somebody will tell you. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> So a fantasy world sounds quite nice. I know. I always try to say that it's a fictionalized version of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Or or I'll place, I'll do things where I'll take a real place, but I'll be very vague about the details. Like there are scenes in my second book that take place in Las Vegas, and I never am specific about which hotel anybody's in or which services. So it's like, there could be a lot of them. So no one can say, well, it should have taken them longer to do this or that place doesn't have, because you know someone's going to do that. Someone's going to yeah. well, stay there, and it's not like that. I was trying to figure out where everybody was staying in your book. Were you trying to? I was. No, I made that. Sorry. <laughs> I make it all up. And that gives you freedom to make things the way you want to be. And I, I hear some authors talk about, oh, are you allowed to reference real places? And some people don't know whether or not you're allowed to. And I don't mean places like the Statue of Liberty, but say, an actual restaurant and I know the rules some people say is just don't say anything bad about it because you don't want the owners to go my staff would never spit in your food or anything like that yeah yeah you have to be careful that sort of thing you don't want to sort of lie in the suit really no (laughs) don't (laughs) Elizabeth what are your favorite kind of books to read do you have time to read Uh, yes um, I think it's really important if you're uh, writing to read because that's really that's where you learn your part. And every time you read a book, you think, gosh, so, you know, that's how you do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, I think if you, if you just read a lot, you know, that's, that's the best tutorial you can get. Um, so I read a lot for research. Um, I can see I've got um, books about Eskimos and whaling fleets on the, um, yeah. Basically, I read everything. I read um, psychological fiction, romance, um, literary books, non-fiction. I think everything's, you know, everything you read just inspires you in some way. Um, 
So that was, was great fun. Yeah. I love that you read beyond just one genre because sometimes you'll hear people in certain genres either say, oh, I won't read this because it's not real literature or it doesn't have doesn't have good writing behind it. Or they only stay in their own lane because they want to make sure that they've read everything out there. And I know none of us can. I mean, you always are hearing something come out going, well, this was the big book. I didn't get to it. Sorry. There are only so many hours in the day and you can only read so yeah. much. Yeah. Well, I think... Um you can read different books. I mean, if you read a page turn and you're saying, well, how did you make me turn the pages? Yeah. Like, was um, it Gone Girl? I mean, Gone Girl. Yeah. It's impossible to read that book and put it down. Like, you have yeah. to, you have to yeah. stay up all night. They did a, it's the did a great job. Books. It is the yeah. of books. One. <laughs> exactly. And then recently I read to Maggie O'Farrell Hamlet about Shakespeare um, and the something lost mm. yeah that's that's quite a big book over here and hearing Mantel about Henry VIII and you're just thinking you know wow that's that's how you can use you know writing to really make things come alive so I think everything you read is um interesting in a different way yeah yeah I mean I'm the same way I write I read sort of everything everything yeah yeah. Like true crime. It's been oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, everything. I was just going to say, one of the things I love about our show is that we've had writers on from so many different backgrounds and just reading what they've done or even seeing, okay, sometimes I can't read everybody's stuff, but I will look and just see the background that they come from. Everybody brings such different things. I love getting to see all these different different styles and approaches even to the same genre. So bringing together, okay, these people both write science fiction, but their books were completely different. Getting to see all those, it's, it's been amazing. And I know some people, they like their comfort reads. They like knowing what they're going to get and they stay really in one narrow lane. And I'm glad that I don't read that way. Cause I think I'd get bored. Yeah. And um, I, I'm part of a online writers group. Well, uh, we were meant to meet in person, but this year it's been online. And in that group, you've got um, a crime fiction author, science fiction author, and two historical authors. So um, I think the process, in some ways, is always the same. I do love reading books about writing. Um, I find that very interesting. So if I find a book about writing, I generally read that. There's a beautiful book that uh, recently came out, David Saunders. I can't remember the name of it, but it's his book about the craft of writing. Oh, right. Yes. That's very, very good. Mm. And I mean, I recommend Stephen King's on writing, even to people yes. who aren't writers. Yeah, that is a great book. Yeah. It's just because I know so many people I know, writers I know, say, oh, well, I don't write horror. And I'm like, it, it, so? It, so what? Neither does Stephen King half the time. Neither does Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Elizabeth, I wanted to ask, for, so from that crop of writers that came out of your master's program together, what genres were represented? Because I'm assuming you guys didn't all do the same kind of book. Um, it was either a literary fiction. Um, there's one psychological thriller. Um they were, but they were quite mostly set in historical context, though. Huh. One lady was, um, she's called Liza Klausman, and she did um, Tigers in Red Weather. And that was quite um, interesting. That was set in the south of France around um, sort of 
Great Gatsby-esque atmosphere. Um, oh, gosh. You said two of my things that I love, South of France yeah. and anything Gatsby area. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. I think it was Ernest Hemingway and all that crew. Yeah. And um, when it was terribly glamorous down there, that's that was a great book. Um, yeah, so I think it generally tended to be either history or female-based literature. Um, yeah. Was that an emphasis in the program that kind of steered you all that way, or was that just a product of luck that that's where the individuals in the program happened to be interested? I think it's just, just a coincidence, really. I think um, I think history is quite interesting, and people tend to gravitate towards that. At the moment, I think the Second World War is very popular. It's just reached yeah. that point where it's far enough away to be something people want to learn about. and. Um, and also with like echoes with what's been happening currently in the political climate. Right? Yeah, well, exactly. So there's because when I started, mirrors. Like, yeah, that's that's very true. I started writing The Good Doctor of Warsaw, thinking this is, you know, very old history. Um, I'm having to explain, you know, about anti-Semitism and things. And 10 years later, I was kind of saying, wow, I wrote that down and people are saying that now. It's like, you know, I can't believe this has come around again. It's really, really unexpected. Well, I think that just shows how important it is to be writing those because as more people are reading them, it reminds us. Because if we do forget these things and then we go, oh, this is a new thing. No, no, it isn't. And the more well-read we are as a culture, the more we'll be able to recognize these things in the early stages and address them before they get to the stage of World War II. That would be yeah. helpful. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, I think there's sometimes when you're writing, there's a feeling of sort of hanging on to something before it's disappeared. So, mm. so with the Doctor of Warsaw, I felt if I didn't get the story down with Roman's help, it would be lost. Yeah. So, um, there's that. Yeah, it's like capturing lightning in a bottle, but of, yeah. of the lightning being a bit of our actual history. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Oh. So on that note, because that was so beautiful and that gave me chills again. Um, thank you, Elizabeth, for being here with us today. Thank you. We got some comments from Marilyn and Carrie. We did see them. Both of them said uh, Marilyn's was, that sounds so fascinating about um, your book about the island and the Inuit oh. people. And, oh, then, and then Carrie, I couldn't quite read Carrie's. I think it was just another very complimentary exciting oh, thing something you. fascinating i don't have my glasses on so sometimes when comments pop up i i'd have to like lean in really close to the screen yeah i'm usually your seeing eye dog because i do wear my glasses but like sometimes we're in the middle of a sentence and i don't want to i don't want to cut off anyone to be like this person said you're awesome what <laughs> <laughs> it is if it was a question i would have made sure we got yes. it in. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Um, really I did not do a weird English accent the entire show. We're very proud of you, Jen. Entire yeah. show. <laughs> thank thank you. Amazing. I know. So I went to school for theater a million years ago, and every once in a while, my tiny Tim just bursts out, or like a, <laughs> a, a laundress from a Dickens book. Uh, so I, I held that in, and I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of you, Vox Thomas Vixens, uh, for being here, getting up early, Allison. I was awake. I was up. I just needed a second cup of coffee to look like I was up. <laughs> Uh-oh, that's a lot of words. I'm not going to be able to okay. read them. 
Elisa Bonch Woman says, thank you, Elizabeth. You are so delightful to listen to, and I'm excited to check out your books. And lovely to see you as always, Box Six. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, and I want to thank um, my Roman, Roman Sorotin, our producer and my husband. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. This has been a copywritten podcast by Global Authors on the Air. Stay tuned this Wednesday where we are going to have Greta Kelly. That's at our normal bat time, normal bat chant. That time, bat station. I'm trying to remember this phrase. Uh, that is at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. And also stay tuned. Thursday night is the return of Writer's Showcase after its multiple month hiatus. I will be your host next Thursday night on Writer's Showcase, and I will be talking to Mr. Paul Tremblay. So lots of uh, cool writers next week. And thank you, everyone. And we love you and goodbye.